0: There is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the active destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Rabble Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance.
1: Part of our, uh, part of what we aim to do with these Rabble Rants is share both things that are pissing us off, but also highlight some of the victories of. Various movements, and today the first thing we want to talk about kind of combines the two because I'm both very, very pissed off and very, very impressed and proud of something. And what we're talking about here is centered around the York Southwestern Tenant Union and their fight against what can only be described as an unlawful eviction. Now, we had the York Southwestern Tenant Union on. A few months ago, I don't really understand time. It might have been months. It might have been weeks. Who knows? But it was one of those episodes that really, really stuck with me. Talking with Bruno gave me a lot of hope. And, you know, I saw Bruno um, speak at a status for all rally. And I saw how much that same energy connects with, with so many people. Everything he said had people fired up. And... They're, they're just the York Southwest is an example of a group who's really doing the work and and they're doing it well. And yeah, we're going to talk about that. So the story behind this essentially is um, it's a building on Lawrence Avenue West, 1440 and 1444. Um, both of them uh, are on the York. 1442. Th- 1442. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Both of them are under the York Southwest Tenant Union. And last Thursday, there was an eviction that seemingly came out of nowhere. So there was um, uh, an elderly woman there who, going about her day as usual, no reason to believe that that Thursday was going to be any different than any other Thursday. When the sheriff knocks on her door, uh, informing her that she is being evicted. Now, that is not usually how these things go. There is a process. You know, evictions take time. You have to go through a a hearing with the landlord and tenant board. There's notices. There's opportunities to pay off uh, if you owe money to pay off the money that's owed. There's a process here, and you do get to fight it. That's not what happened here. She has no idea that this eviction is coming. And Until the sheriff shows up at her door. Now, it turns out that um, she owes, well, initially they said 500 then they bumped it up to $900, 900 and something. Um, which was confusing because she pays her rent through automatic payments that get taken out of her account. So she didn't even know that she owed money, right? And the landlord just wants her out of there. Now... When I say landlord, I really should be saying slumlord because the way that they run these buildings can only be described as a slumlord. Now, you might be wondering, where was these notices? Why was she not getting notices? Well, that particular building, Canada Post hasn't been delivering mail there for three years. Why? Because it's infested with bugs, bed bugs. So much so that Canada Post... Does not deliver to that building so she received no notices because of this now taking care of bug infestations is a responsibility of every landlord it is a legal responsibility it's not up to the tenant to take care of it it's a, it's up to the landlord they need to pay for the treatment which as somebody who had a run in with bed bugs last year, which was a fucking nightmare. It's expensive. It's really expensive. Um But it's the it's the obligation. So because of this, because of the actions of the landlord, she had no idea this was happening. Now, how does she respond? She offers to pay the money that she is that is owed. York Southwest and Tenant Union, of course, shows up and they're supporting her the whole way. And one of them on video captures an exchange, which is incredibly important here, where the landlord and the police are telling her that if she comes down to the management office, she can pay what is owed and she will not be evicted. Okay? She agrees. She goes down to the office. And then they tell her, sorry. We're not accepting any payments. You're officially evicted. And the sheriff changed the locks on her door, locking her out, including locking her away from her diabetes medication, which she desperately needs. uh, And everything else that she owns. And everything else that she owns. I've never heard of an eviction like this in my life. I mean, this is incredibly fucking shady. Like this the second i heard about this it's like oh this is this is seriously wrong
0: you know what i think it happens more often than we'd like to believe if you've ever been on any tenant facebook groups where they're sharing horror stories basically of landlords it's unbelievable the things that landlords will try to pull not sometimes, you know, they're completely oblivious to their obligations as landlords, they are just looking for the money. Sometimes, they're just absolutely manipulative and they rely on the majority of people either being in precarious situations where they can't fight back or completely oblivious to their rights as tenants. I think the reason we know about this abhorrent tactic used by the landlords here, the slumlords, is because. They were already organized as a building. And watching York Southwest and Tenant Union in action was unbelievable. The Badasses. latest.
1: They're yeah, like those folks badass. are still
0: occupying the administrative office at the bottom of 1440, Lawrence.
1: From noon on Thursday.
0: Till today. And we're recording this Sunday afternoon, 17th of December. And. At some point during today, the thanks to solidarity with fellow tenants and supporters, they regained entry into the unit. They that was managed to. What's that? They've
1: been there since yesterday. They reestablished occupancy yesterday.
0: Okay, so they got in, and then the superintendent removed the door, and the police have been on scene off and on. You know, I think Santiago, you made the point there and maybe mentioned overhearing that the cops absolutely knew that this eviction was not on the up and up. And that's why they've allowed the occupation really to, to carry on as much as it has. I think normally I would have expected arrest by now.
1: Let's talk about how that happened though. Right? So when, when the tenant was informed that she was evicted, they changed the locks immediately. They began occupying the office, uh, at the foot of the building. Um, And immediately, you know, there's police that show up. They're threatening to arrest them. Now,
0: six police cars, a fire truck.
1: Oh, yeah. And
0: like the paddy wagon.
1: There's maybe eight, nine members of the York Southwest tenant Union who are occupying the office. But on the outside, there was also many of the residents of the building came out in support uh, the Livemore High Park Tenant Union, a new tenant union, um, who's currently organizing um, for their rights as well. They showed up in solidarity. They put up a sign. People put up signs. People were coming by with food, with tea. You know, There was a lot of solidarity happening. People who were not part of the tenant union were here. Uh, and they were confronting the police about how unjust this was. They were standing up for the rights of their fellow tenant. Right There was so much solidarity happening. And as much as this was a horrible, horrible thing that was happening, it was incredible to watch. Um, I showed up very late because I didn't even know about this happening. So I showed up at what time? 9, 10 p.m., something like that. Um, and, you know, the police were there. I tried to get information from them to, because, you know, I, I want them to admit to what they're doing. They don't talk to me. They give me a phone number to call their division. I call. They're like, sorry, we're not talking to you. Uh, you have to talk to someone else. I'm like, who else can I talk to? They're like, you're going to have to figure that out on your own. Okay. I talked to Jess. Jessica calls every single fucking number. Absolutely no information from anyone. Why? Because they know what the fuck they're doing here. They know they fucked up. So you got big six foot five or something. Very typical cop-looking cop guarding the doorway. This man the entire time was fidgeting with his pistol, fidgeting with handcuffs, which very unnerving. Um, definitely got the energy that he was on some kind of power trip, right? But the the York Southwest Intendant Union, they, they stood their ground. They were talking about how they were, they were saying, we, we don't get evicted. We don't let things get this far. We stand up for each other and we don't let it get to this point. You know, we have lawyers on retainer. They put an emergency injunction with the landlord and tenant board, which we recently heard that got approved. They're getting an expedited hearing to resolve this issue. And I'll I'll pull up uh, what the landlord and tenant board had to say about this in a second. But before we do that, um, let me just pull it up so I can have it there. But, yeah, so they're occupying this office, and the cops tell them, you know, we're going if to, you, if you don't leave, they were saying something along the lines of, you have permission to protest on the property, but you don't have permission in this office, and if you don't leave, we will arrest you, all of you. They don't budge. They don't budge an inch and now i've 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 been around a, uh, the block a couple times in my head i'm I'm being a pessimist. I'm thinking this only ends one way with everyone here getting arrested because I've seen it happen too many times where these things end up with everyone getting arrested, but they're holding the ground they b- bring in the quote unquote good cop to negotiate you know all like, oh, I understand your struggle, you guys are good people, you're fighting for rights I don't want to you know the, the typical shit. textbook. yeah um like we haven't seen the movies yeah and and they they know what's going on the um but they explain the situation to the cops and you kind of get the vibe that they were like oh this is you know they've seen some evictions this is not how it goes
0: yeah like there should be a notice pasted to the door and like Santiago said there's hearings through the linen, through the tenant landlord board so one knows well ahead of time that eviction is looming. And so what they mean is then they organize amongst each other. So if that means paying back rent, if that means an unfair eviction, if that means making sure they're well represented at, at all the hearings that they need to go to, like that's the whole point of these tenant unions. So it was so obvious whether it was the fact that the mailing didn't go there. That doesn't even cut it either because it, he the landlord knows where to find this person. And the fact that the... The fact that the sheriff and the police were on board, I mean, it's unbelievable that resources are used in this way to make people homeless in winter because of rent that is being, can be paid like throughout this, there was over and over the willingness to pay the back rent over and over. And And they
1: have to allow it. it. They have to allow it.
0: They do. And that's, Hopefully, if it goes towards the board and there's no other issues pending, you are given the opportunity to pay and remain. The point is to keep people housed. But the city of Toronto is using their resources, many resources, at removing people from the only thing that they've got. It's one thing to have a slumlord, but this is is a combined effort. And it goes back to our episode on fascism, honestly, to see the state work like this with a landlord to evict and to persist so long with it. It's ridiculous. And, and just to be
1: clear, because, you know, people will use the, oh, you know, livelihood of the landlord thing. This is not a motherfucking mom and pop landlord. Uh, Barry,
0: I don't care if it was. I, it doesn't either. matter. There's care. no But let's difference. be clear about
1: who it is, because there is a certain audacity here. Yeah. Barney River uh, is the, the company which.
0: Yeah, we definitely have to name drop them.
1: Yeah, which um, is run by Aziz Manji. They're a massive, massive uh, company. Who is? I mean, you if you read their mission statement, they're all about, you know, exploiting uh, m- maximum value. You know, they're like we'll kick out whoever we need to kick out. They're they're looking. Why are they not letting her pay this money? Because they're hoping to replace her with somebody who will be able to pay more rent, right? They're looking to raise the rents. They don't give a fuck. About the individual here. Uh, so th- there's quite a lot of audacity there. Anyway, so around 3 in the morning, um, the cops, well, they, first they call the superintendent. They get the superintendent to remove some documents or whatnot from the office. And then they leave. I was really shocked at that. They, Both the
0: cops and the superintendent leave.
1: Yeah, the cops and the superintendent.
0: That's shift change time, by the way.
1: Yeah, that was, but that was a fucking win. The fact that it didn't end up with all of them getting arrested, that was a win and a testament. Because someone overheard one of the cops saying, you know, with all of these eyes and with the way that the situation has gone down, we cannot arrest these people. They stepped in it. They seriously fucking stepped in it.
0: And so one of the main missions of the organizers there, you know, it was a two front, right? It was an occupation and they were filing the necessary paperwork to do it legally. But knowing that the landlord tenant board is such a kangaroo court shit show, you know, they divided their tactics because it wasn't enough to rely on that. Plus, this would have meant the shelters were full. The police acknowledged the shelter system was full and then that would mean, putting this person out onto the street. And the fact that people are making policy decisions like this and calculated manipulative tactics to unhouse people enrages me. Like, th- that is the harshest consequence. You're not just behind on an electricity bill or, or something like that. Like, you're removing shelter from them in an environment where getting a new apartment is next to impossible. This would have lifelong consequences for a lot of people. So resisting that eviction in the first place is so important. And if this person did not have the tenant union behind them, I imagine this, like I said before, this is replicated over and over and over again. And they're not just working to massively unhoused housed people, but the amount of encampment evictions that are also happening at the same time as this not just in Toronto but right across Canada right now in the winter is class warfare
1: yeah and one of the, one of the telling moments of it um you know because the the cops are trying to say you know like right now we're we're concerned about getting this tenant uh shelter tonight right what was the response from York Southwestern. there's an empty unit right upstairs with all of their belongings, their unit. That is their shelter. That is their home. That's sitting empty right now. That is where they should be. And they did not budge on that. Right. Um, now, since that has happened, like we said, they're still occupying the office. They reestablish occupancy. uh the landlord took down the door. They put it right back up. They brought in people with tools, put it back up. And now uh, the their request was granted. Here, uh, let, let me read the wording from this. While well, it's not clear that the enforcement of an order by the sheriff may constitute an illegal lockout, the allegations of abuse of process raise an issue that having regard to the consequential homelessness of the tenant in my view merits an expedited hearing to allow the parties to make submissions as to the appropriateness of the remedy of restoration sought by the tenant in mitigation of resultant prejudice the board shall schedule the hearing on an expedited basis furthermore we should re- should any request or review order something, something something be submitted and a preliminary review granted the board is directed to hear this application And any such review together. So there. As we mentioned. The the landlord and tenant board. Is a fucking kangaroo court. That's mostly run by landlords. This wording is pretty aggressive. For them. Um, I think it's pretty clear. The fact that this was granted. That this is far. Far from a normal situation. Or from how it's supposed to be. Legally played out. And. You know, right when the cops left, you know, first of all, everyone running for the bathroom because they had been occupying that space since uh, 1 p.m. But then, you know, there was a question of, okay, we got to stay here overnight. And the people who had been there for over 12 hours, really like 14 hours at that point. Pretty much every single one of them was like, I'll stay here overnight. I'll keep staying here. And I was. So impressed with that. The resolve that they had. The fight that they had. Like this was. We are not letting a single one of us go down. We're not letting this happen. We're not letting the rights of our fellow tenant be violated. It was exactly what we need to see. It was exactly what we talk about here. That resistance. It was honestly so impressive. And this needs to be replicated across the country
0: and you know what it is in acorn is doing an incredible job of helping to organize tenants and we are seeing more and more people mobilizing around encampment evictions i want to move to edmonton now the police there they sent out a notice to frontline agencies around the city letting them know ahead of time that they were going to destroy eight encampments and advocates let us know that those encampments represent about 135 structures they imagine there's about two people per structure on average it so the we're talking about uh, probably around 300 people are going to be without any shelter whatsoever. And to just kind of set the picture for folks of what it's like in Edmonton right now for the unhoused community, just recently they updated a memorial that they have in the Boyle Street community. And they added 118 names. That means between June and October of this year 118 people died in that community most of those people were unhoused a lot of the deaths were caused by drug poisoning by the lack of a safe drug supply and in that same system all uh, Edmonton has about 3,000 folks without shelter. This likely, this figure does not likely include the numbers of people who couch surf or who are precariously housed. It's, it's a count of street-involved people, people living on the street. And there are only about 1,100 shelter spaces. So every night already, there's about 1,800 folks that likely rely on these tents and they're going to take 300 of them and just kind of disperse them. And when this happens, these encampment evictions, they disproportionately impact the same folks that are always over represented in The worst statistics in society, you know, like indigenous people make up a large part of these encampments, trans people, non-binary folks, women. And those are the shelter spaces. Those are the same folks that are often struggling with the shelter space system, not being built for them, not being safe for them. And so the police decide that, you know, Edmonton's also run by a mayor who brags about winning his campaign on the public safety mantra. You look at his pin tweet on his profile, and that's what he's talking about. He's going to clean up the streets, and the cops are helping him do it. Thankfully, advocates have kind of pitted the city, the some of the councillors against the police services. There's, It's not clear who even ordered the encampments to be cleared. And Edmonton actually has certain criteria. The last time we talked about encampment evictions... Uh, They used fire safety as one of the reasons that St. Stephen was cleared out. And subsequently, you know, there were fires at encampments. And so there's a measuring system within the city of Edmonton on like, and I think a color coding system on how safe or unsafe an encampment is. And like, you got to imagine who sets these criteria anyway apparently nobody paired these criteria in any regard the cops just came up with a list and they're clearing them out this is scheduled to start tomorrow i believe there's been some pushback and use of the courts to delay or or stop this but that's not that would not have happened if it hadn't been from massive amounts of pushback from housing advocates that are saying, you know, they probably fought for these criterias, right? Like, at least you can't just clear them arbitrarily. The only You have to have good reason to need to clear an encampment. And then the cops are just like, well, we're going to do it on our own. So it's not quite clear what happened there. But what it's clear is, like, they're using their resources and they're focusing on clearing encampments as... As an activity, period. Why are any dollars going to these activities to do this? And why are people allowed to sit and plan and, and assess and decide and then not think of consequence? Why are they not responsible for then going, where are these 300 people going to go then? What is going to stop the rain from and the snow from falling on them at nighttime? Why is that not part of the plan ever? The city of Toronto will say that it is part of their plan, but it's not really. There's, they're shuffling them off for a few days, nowhere near where they live. I imagine Edmonton has something similar. Who knows? But Halifax also last week had a, one of a larger encampments there threatened with police force, threatened with clearing. And it was, again, the resistance of local advocates that managed to push that back. But... That gets tiring. Like, if you're not there, if they're not organized, these encampments are going to get cleared. These folks are going to get evicted without unions. It's relentless. And to think of, like, increasing police budgets or funding this and making that a priority for city services or city staff, I just, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but nothing else makes sense other than just pure class warfare, Right. Because it's not safer. These people are more likely to overdose. They're more likely to die in the elements. They're more likely to face violence when you evict them from the encampments, when you evict them from their home. And it's, um, I, it, you know, it is heartening to see tenant organization and all these these other movements kind of getting a little bit more bold in their resistance like hearing someone say we don't get evicted like that's got to spark something in folks and I think you have to draw that line like I think we do have to say at this point like nobody should be evicted anymore we definitely should never allow evictions in winter I don't know how that's not been mandated at this point how that's not something that any basic human could agree to but it all comes down to the commodification. Like, it surprises me that that appeals to the, the police in the way that they say, well, her, her shelter is up there. Because the landlord would argue that's not her shelter, it's mine. And even though I'm not doing anything with it, it doesn't matter. Right? Like, I have some sort of right to have extra shelter. To, the whole idea of having landlords is abhorrent right? We never got together as a society to then profit off of one another's shelter. If you think of the most rudimentary communities trying to build structures to likely keep us warm and dry and together. And at some point, mostly thanks to folks like John Locke, we started looking at things as a means to just like get ahead of one another. And the fact that you know, water, electricity, and a lot of things have fallen into that. But shelter, it just seems like at its most basic, that that isn't resisted more. That that idea isn't resisted more. I think more and more people are like, you know, all all landlords are bastards. A lot of people have gotten there at this point. But yeah, I'm happy to push that narrative.
1: I mean, I feel like everyone I know has some sort of landlord horror story at this point. You know, a good friend of mine just last week, you know, they thought they had bud bugs and uh, they wanted to, you know get someone to come in check and do the treatment if needed the landlord was refusing to pay for it uh, and they just moved in not long ago at all and they're paying quite a lot of money uh, between the three of them for that apartment um, you know that is an incredibly common story you know I have a friend who his landlord uh, lives on the top floor he lives in the basement with his uh, mom helps his mom pay the rent his brother lives there too and you know, he does jobs for the landlord. The landlord hires him to do, you know, manual labor jobs. And and just the other day, you know, th- like, they were asking because the landlord wanted to raise a rent. They're like, can you not? We can't really afford that. And he's like, okay, if you can't afford that, then you got to go because I'm raising the rent. doesn't matter that he's getting exploited on both sides, rent and work, you know. Horror stories everywhere you look. Everyone I know has something. Um and, yeah, I absolutely think right now, like, we should be saying no evictions, as in we will not allow any fucking evictions anywhere. No encampments, no apartments, house, anything. No evictions. That should be where we draw the line right now. And we need to resist them. And that's been a problem lately, because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of evictions go down without resistance. It's unacceptable right now. We need to stop it. And it is Doable people like the York Southwest and Tenant Union show us that if you stand in solidarity, if you resist, it can be won, and that is what we should be doing right now. It, if and we have to understand that this is something that affects all of us. I mean, we've seen the prices go up and up and up and up and up. We're all being squeezed here, it could happen. To, we're only one crisis away at any moment in time from being in the exact same boat. So whenever these are happening, whether it's in your building or it's a building down the road or wherever it is, we should be showing up in solidarity and fighting back.
0: Absolutely. Kathy Crowe's got a tweet out there as well. It's not a organizing, resisting kind of tweet, but it goes to the policy decisions that I was talking about and holding politicians accountable. Or tweet is like, Maybe it's time to just start walking into City Hall with the people we're unable to get shelter for, you know, right to the counselor's office, right to the mayor's office. And I think holding Olivia Chow or some of these counselors, I mean, I wouldn't expect some of them to do a damn thing. But what you know, what do you expect us to do in a housing crisis? How can you then at least remove people from what they've got? It it absolutely makes no sense. And I think Olivia Chow is getting off a little bit light here, considering what's happening across the city in terms of evictions of all sorts. And she's been absolutely silent, right? And her office plays a part in this. So side note, you know, for folks who maybe don't follow Toronto politics, but surely remember Rob Ford, because who doesn't? Olivia Chow in Toronto City Council just named a stadium after him. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are using this as a time to shame drug users, and I'm definitely not one of them. I'm not going to go there. I think that's ridiculous. The fact that this man, you know, smoked crack was had nothing to do with the reason we shouldn't be honoring him with a stadium name. And it's not something that's really so lighthearted as it's like, oh, that's not really important. That's a side issue because it speaks to the people we idolize. And we're tearing down fucking monuments all the time because we've learned how problematic that is. Yet we're still lining up what a stadium that needs to be renamed 20 years from now when someone with a backbone puts a petition in and says it should just not be named after any human being whatsoever
1: breaking news (laughs) as of one minute ago after 74 hours of continuous protests at Barney Rivers 1440 Lawrence West Property Management Office the demands to let Carmen access her unit and get her keys have been met (gasps) Carmen's case goes to the landlord and tenant board this week and the fight continues stronger together this was posted one minute ago by the York Southwest and Tenant Union.
0: So shout out to Bruno and Chiara and all of the folks that were doing the organizing. I only mention them because of the folks I know by name, but... Excellent effort. We'll keep you updated. Obviously we're going to try to drag Bruno back in here or someone who can give us like the really intimate details of this victory because Bruno was the one that reminded us that sharing victories was so important because people will not put in the effort. They will not sit 74 hours. They will not risk arrest if they don't know that there's a possibility that they will win. So, Yes, they still have to go to that damn board, but I mean, if they've got the money to pay their background, I can't see them losing it. So they're
1: not losing that. They're not losing that.
0: Definite snaps for (laughs) York Southwest in there. Uh, Yeah, thank you for that good and breaking news. (laughs) That's Um, incredible.
1: Oh my God. But that's like, that's the power we're talking about here. Every single person who was there, every, you know,
0: please. Yeah. Every every person, because
1: these are massive buildings, right? Every person who maybe was like, okay, should I be in this struggle? Can they really help me? Can they really protect me? Just saw firsthand what the power of solidarity does in these situations. They saw that the York Southwest Tenant Union stood up and they won that battle. They got her her keys back. They got her, her unit back. It's, I mean, this is, this is honestly, this is incredible. This is like, I knew like when we first spoke to them that there was something special here and they just, they continue to prove it right. So big ups to York Southwest and tenant union. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I'm just so happy right now. This is like, this is, this is the best news I've heard in a while.
0: And we need a good news. We needed good news. Because the transition here in the episode is going to be a little bit brutal. (laughs) Buckle up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No,
0: it's whatever. Uh, Like Santiago said at the beginning of the episode, though, the whole purpose of the rants is to talk about what is pissing us off. And sometimes they have really good victories and and acts of resistance to go along with them. And sometimes they're just items that make us really angry. And I don't think angry accurately describes what's going on in, in Gaza or my reaction to what's going on in Gaza. Santiago and I were talking before we started to record, and I think... It's important to kind of rehash a little bit that it's hard to even understand what emotion you feel at this point when you are witnessing genocide. (laughs) I laugh only because I'm uncomfortable and I honestly sometimes don't know how to react. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I get really mad. Sometimes it drives me, you know. Sometimes it puts me into just like utter despair. And when we had originally come up with the rants, it was supposed to be an outlet for us. I did envision it being really topical all the time and that changing week to week. And I understand this is going to be like the I don't know however many weeks we're into it time that we've spoken about Gaza. But it's important for us to document the war crimes that are happening for me. Because I feel that's all I can do sometimes. (laughs) And again, we've talked about them before, but there is no talking about it enough. The journalists in Gaza have such immense bravery at the moment. So I think spreading their stories is the least we can do, considering the risk that they're taking to collect them. And one of the most Kind of poignant examples that came out of this week of that is Wail al Dauda. And you'll recognize him as white hair, white beard. He was the journalist we witnessed getting the news that the majority of his family had been wiped out by an Israeli airstrike while he was on air that was really early on in the siege and just this week he was injured uh by shrapnel in the arm on another airstrike as they were trying to extract people from another building and the cameraman that he was with was killed along with another journalist And depending on what reports that you read, we could be there at like 64 journalists. And I've seen reports that would put us closer to 78 or 80 at this point. And many, many, many have been arrested as well. So taken into custody by the Israeli army. And so the fact that we're still even getting stories out of there is some sort of miracle because it's clear that the Israeli army... These folks aren't just dying because they're in proximity to war. They're also being targeted and their families are being targeted. Poets are being targeted. Artists and educators and intellects are now being targeted, which fully meets the criteria of a genocide. And replications of what the fucking Nazis did. 100%. So we have to tell their stories and they're going to, they're horrific I mean, did you want to chime in on the journal? Did you? It's okay if you don't.
1: No, it's it's just, it's been very, it's getting difficult to to still keep up with everything, to feel it all. And it's so, like... Right now, you know, going into the holiday season, it's one of those things where, you know, it's supposed to be that time of the year that we're supposed to be happy and celebrating and all of these things. And honestly, like, I think that we need to double down on all efforts to show what's happening here because horrible things tend to get suppressed at this time of the year. We're not supposed to be thinking of horrible things. But this holiday, which was, uh, you know, stolen from the pagans, um, is supposed to celebrate, you know, the birth of a Palestinian man in a city that is in Palestine that people built the whole religion around. I think it's quite obvious how important it is to keep talking about this. How, How... any claims that it's not, you know, seasonal or whatever. No, I mean, what else are you supposed to be talking about here? And, um, yeah, no, I don't know.
0: You know, I was messaging with Mohammed earlier and we were kind of talking about this and it's hard. And I saw a video by Bisan where, You know, she's making a plea like, how can you celebrate right now? Can you hear the bombs? Do you understand the conditions of people? How can you celebrate? How can you, especially Christmas, when we're talking about Jesus likely being Palestinian. (laughs) If you look at the story of Jesus.
1: Well, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is in the West Bank.
0: Yeah. So it's particularly ironic and difficult, but going back to my discussion with Mohammed there and being a parent of kids who expect Christmas and you have a duty as a parent to maintain as much normalcy as possible. And I think like you even kind of see this in the videos from Gaza where parents are trying to calm their children and you have to imagine at the same point that they're just going through complete horrors but their job is to get their children through it. And it's, it's hard to engage meaningfully when this is on your mind without guilt. And, but, you know, at the same time, if we deny ourselves everything and anything good, uh, surely we won't have a long fight on hand. Surely that would burn everybody out and we would lose sight of, you know, what's important. But, yeah, it doesn't come without immense kind of questioning and difficulties because the things that we're seeing, particularly as the war moves on, you know, the bombings were bad. The relentless bombings for weeks and weeks are bad. Uh, But as the ground troops move through Gaza and we are still allowed to see images coming from there, Surely folks have seen, or maybe you have not, maybe spare yourself. Outside of most of the hospitals, any that are functioning in any form, there are many people taking shelter in tents. So most of these folks will likely be sick or injured and just unable to be treated inside the hospital. Also remember, hospitals have been targets of strikes and whatnot. A lot of them are under siege. At this particular hospital... Kamal Adwan Hospital in Gaza. Israeli tanks and bulldozers moved through and literally ran over folks in tents that were unable to flee, sick and injured Palestinians. And the aftermath being videoed after the IDF pulled out is just horrendous to see. Also this week, the IDF itself had was forced to admit that they themselves shot three hostages. And we absolutely know for a fact that they have killed more Israelis than that. However, this time they admitted to it. Not only did they admit to shooting these three folks who were wearing no shirts, they admitted they were waving white flags. Those pieces of shit admitted That had they only known that they were Israeli, they wouldn't have shot them, but they acknowledged that they were shirtless and grouped together, walking, waving a white flag, and that was okay to kill on sight. Like, all three were shot dead, no survivors. Which is
1: also, I mean, worth mentioning, once again, that's a war crime to kill anyone waving a white flag, but, you know, who's counting?
0: Well, absolutely, but... The state of Canadian media and some of the folks out there is, is fucking horrendous because a lot of the narrative around that is Zionists assuring each other, well, don't forget, sometimes Hamas is dressed as civilians. Or don't... The worst, which implies that it's okay to shoot civilians, right? If they if they look like civilians, and that's okay. But even worse than that is there's this fucking turf out there. I'm not even going to drop their name. They write books and they tweeted, you know, keep in mind hostages had reportedly female hostages had reportedly been asked to wear hijabs as they were moved from location to location when we're discussing the fact that hostages were shot by the IDF. So she's implying that it would have been okay if it had just been a Palestinian woman in a hijab that had been shot. And the fact that people are saying this on the Internet, where it is forever, where everyone can see it without apologies, is, is likely what everyone experienced in Germany at the time. And I I know that this has happened many, many times over throughout the world. There's been so many genocides. I think the Tamil genocide has come up many times in talking about Gaza, particularly the tactic of hurting people to a safe zone and then bombing that safe zone. But it's just I don't remember a lot of people trying to defend that at the time. I don't remember a lot of Canadian media saying that there would have been exceptions for that and yeah well they're trying to get the Tamil Tigers and it's unreal the brazenness to which Canadian media is behaving right now
1: I mean one thing I'm 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 almost confused about why the hell did they admit this like usually for them to have have come out and 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 said this of their own volition. It it, it makes it seem like they're trying to get ahead ahead of something much worse too, right? And this has led to this has led to massive uh, protests within Israel. There's in Tel Aviv. There's massive protests going on. So it's it's clear that this struck a nerve, which is stupid because like once again, no no life is like. I'm sorry. Uh, the the tens of thousands of dead children. That's fine. But the second three Israeli hostages are killed. That's the end of everything. Like, it shows you the way that we were that we're we're taught to think when it comes to these conflicts of like disregarding and dehumanizing others, and it shows you.
0: You say we, but I like. I don't know. I think Zionism, Zionism has a special flavor of dehumanization that occurs because the things that we have seen the soldiers do is unreal. And I, I don't know if this happens in all war zones or not, but I'm talking about like folks are proposing to their girlfriends in the ruins of apartment buildings and promising to build their new home there. They must smell the death, Santiago. When they're taking these photos, they can smell death for sure. They can see evidence of dead children everywhere, likely. And they are dancing and singing and raising flags and getting down on hand and knee. And, you know, we've heard about the number one song in Israel and the horrendous lyrics that were in that. It's not just soldiers either, you know the the when you when you position yourself as a chosen with exclusivity built into land rights this is what happens this cuz i i could not i cannot understand What has happened to some of these human beings to behave this way? Yes, it's state powers making these decisions. Yes, it's Netanyahu that has crafted much of this. But it's people that are carrying it out. There's snipers shooting into churches, killing old women.
1: This is the result of, this is what theocratic fascism looks like in practice. You know, the episode we did the other day on fascism. This is the result of that, you know. And it it, it's also the result of the Western world having given them permission to do so. Because they're they're out here telling on themselves. All these things it's videos that they're posting on their social media accounts, you know? Like they're doing the hostages
0: bound and blindfolded, half naked, in the middle of the desert, on their knees in rows. We have seen this in ISIS videos. What did they do with those people? So what they're doing is they're going into UN schools that have become these safe zones for folks. They're like huge buildings, compounds even. And hundreds and hundreds of people are sheltering because there's uh, you, the apartment buildings are targets. They figure if there's anywhere that's safe, it's a UN building. Obviously, we know that's not true, but they have the facilities to house more people than a destroyed building. So they're going into these places and they are separating the men from the women. And they are taking men that they think appear to be 16 or older. It's arbitrary. And they are taking them and they are stripping them and they are videotaping them and they are asking them to perform. And then they are taking them to locations unknown. Now, I,
1: I'm someone who, like, I've kind of uh, denounced to a certain extent the Nazi comparisons because, I, I, like I said, I feel like there's there's more useful ones. But I, one thing I'm curious about is what would it have looked like during the Holocaust, during you know the Nazi regime, if social media had been around back then? What kind of things would they have been posting on their social media? Because I am kind of getting. I mean, that what kind vibe. of things
0: would the Nazis themselves?
1: Yeah, yeah. What kind of yeah,
0: shit would have been posted
1: in the in the yeah. camps? Because yeah. because, I mean, that that's the thing that's weird about this, right? We we haven't seen, like, usually genocide isn't broadcast on social media, but that's what we're seeing right here, and, and they're so indoctrinated that they they believe that they're. Their right to do this and, and they feel very enabled to do it by the West that has given them permission said, hey, you want to kill? Well, I mean, who knows? How many children is enough? Let's talk about that over and over again. You know you know what I mean? like The West has actively given them permission to do so. And so they feel quite entitled to do so and this is what they're doing and it's shocking.
0: Every one of and these w- tactics we've known that they've used, like we've known they've used bulldozers to run over people. We know that they've attack people in places of worship. We know that they have imprisoned and killed children. Uh, But we were okay as long as it was like a couple dozen at a time. Right? Because I think now what has happened, I think they've overplayed their hand. I know that sounds really kind of callous and removed, but from a political spectrum, like you have France now and the UK and begrudgingly Canada now calling for a ceasefire. Because how long? Can you view these images and the massive street protests and be in any kind of position to issue statements or defenses of that anymore? You
1: you know what concerns me? What would our society be like if we hadn't been taught that the Nazis were like the greatest evil and that fascism was this evil thing? Like if that hadn't been a part of our education. Like because that was a part of our education. And yet. Here we have theocratic fascism playing out in front of us, and there's all kinds of ways to justify it. So I can only imagine how much worse it would have been. Because, like, this is, this is the thing. Like, this is supposed to be something that is very easy for people to stand up against. And it shows you how powerful, you know, the, those who shape the narrative, whether it be the media, the, you know, it shows you how powerful that is. Because. One day they show you ISIS with these videos of the, them having people tied up in the desert, and you think these savages, these, how, like, how corrupt, these absolute corrupted, this is the face of evil, right? The next day, you see it from someone who's on our side, right? You see IDF soldiers tying up people, and it's like, oh, well, those are terrorists, you know? Good job, Fry. You know, it shows you. Same picture. It shows you how different we interpret it. Just like how the... Was the muhashid muhajid, Muhashedin? Muhashedin? Something like that. Pre... You know, the, the Al-Qaeda before Al-Qaeda. Uh, back when they were fighting the Soviets. You know, oh, these are brave freedom fighters. You know? But the second, it's the other way. You know? Savage terrorists. I think,
0: though... I think that used to work. I don't think it's going to work anymore. A lot of the, you know, before October 7th and even after for a little bit. But I I think that this is impossible now for people to say, oh, well, Israel's the one civilized nation in the Arab world. Israel is the only just democracy in the Arab world. And before there was plenty of evidence to the contrary but now everyone has seen it, right? Like there there is no denying the comparisons that we've made at this point. There is no propping up Israel as a shining beacon of justness or anything good at this point. Whether or not we do enough to stop it, And to make sure it doesn't happen again is really the only question left, right? Because I'm afraid that it'll be another one of those abhorrent moments in history that simply go into the history books. And although we learn about the Nazis and they say, you know, if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. We see evidence to the contrary all the time that in fact, sometimes the more we know about our history, the more we replicate it. And that's not to say we shouldn't learn from our history, but if the victors are going to be allowed to rewrite this 20 years from now and reposition themselves without really dire consequences, and I don't mean fucking sanctions. I mean, like, there needs to be a solution where the state of Israel never gets to say what happens to another Palestinian ever fucking again. Like, ever again. I don't know what that means. If that means dismantling the Israeli state, then that's what it means. But... Anything short of ending Zionism, frankly, wouldn't be good enough for me because it would just be another one of those. Well, you paid the price and for seven years you can't sit in the U.N. or whatever kind of lame punishment you think you can dole out for this. But in the meantime, like, will they get that land back? Will they get the north of Gaza back? When is this over? How many will survive? You know what are the what are the consequences at this point? I think people need to start looking towards as well. On top of stopping it, because the ceasefire, if that happens, is not going to be enough.
1: Mm-hmm. It's important that we not just learn history, but we learn why history happened. Right, that's the difference. History is not a a a, a, chrono- a a chronology of I don't even know if that's a word chronology of facts. For us to regurgitate onto a test, history is something that we need to learn why things occurred. Because you ask people, I mean, how? It's a question people always ask themselves, right? We say it all the time, you know. Oh, what would you have done? You know, with the Nazi? We we don't get taught how fascism rises. We don't get taught how genocides occur. Why? What leads up to them? We just learn that they happened. Horrible things. But they ha- and they happened and that's history right and, and- the framed
0: is just like evil right like almost as though hitler was the devil something almost incalculable you can't really understand how someone gets that way and there's a lot of political analysts who will try to come up with how like he he singularly how he was shaped as a youth and came up with these ideas but it's like but it took it took in an entire populace right like it it permeated throughout it wasn't a single evil individual but when you're in history class that's what it feels like yeah right and any it's, it's, german it's that went really along helpful. yeah and any german that went along with it didn't fully understand what was happening or felt threatened and yeah there's that 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 type of real learning of that experience does not really happen
1: it, it's, it's it feels very uh almost christian you know like there's there's a there's a a religious feel to it right in the way that like they portray these battles between good and evil where they portray, you know like it's it's very biblical feeling right and it's not particularly helpful to think that way like we need to be far more nuanced and we're not taught to, to think critically whatsoever and it's not it's suing us at the service
0: uh no OK, I just want to touch on the so you're like, I just want to write where he left off, like to service, like not learning history. Well, um, OK. I wonder, though, looking back and I hate to get to this point where we're starting to look back at it because there's a crisis to stop at the moment. But looking back at Canadian media a few years out. I'm curious as to how we then write this into history, seeing what we're seeing. And most people will know the shit show that's going on at Canada Land and Jesse Brown, but he is not alone in this. The Breach just released a study. They've been analyzing Canadian media, actually analyzing Canadian media, not like Jesse Brown pretends to be doing. And they found, you know, at the CBC, for example, was featuring. more Israeli voices than Palestinian voices, despite the disproportionate death toll that we've seen and we know. And CTV was even worse. Like they're one of the worst. It's like 62% more Israeli voices being aired and named in their reports. And We've given countless other examples into the language that's used around some of these reports and how it it washes Israeli of war crimes and always has such heavy emphasis on what Hamas did on October 7th. But the way the Canadian media still persists to shape this moment as something to rally around anti-Semitism. Still, still, with this death toll and the amount of actual violence and criminalization, retribution, job losses that have occurred with Palestinian voices, the Canadian media is still, you know, filming students coming out of high schools and trying to get people upset with them. Right. Like. Jesse Brown targeting a racialized Shri Prakar from Toronto Star. And that is his focus in this moment in time. When a genocide is occurring, like Joe Warmington is worried about what grade nine and ten students are doing out in Scarborough, because that might feel unsafe to fucking who. Like, I just don't understand how this is allowed to persist in Canadian media and what's that going to do about how we look back at it? Because are those going to be the headlines that remain or are we going to hold those people accountable for doing this, for justifying genocide and trying to deflect, deflect, deflect? Like you're talking about street protests and boycotts of businesses that are being still framed as what is unsafe right now. As what is the danger right now when we've just described what I've described to you about the horrors happening in Gaza and this is just such a point of contention for me I guess because I I don't understand I can understand how there's a few individuals but to see so many people still including that in the report in the focus after two months now still feeling the need to condemn Hamas or rocket attacks or anything that they did on October 7th at this point, even though they've seen what they've seen. And that is the strongest narrative in Canadian media still, even after the call for the ceasefire. It's really not relented. I don't know. You even see like German police storming universities, like complete Gestapo tactics happening all over again actually taking people into custody wearing kafiyas. This is not happening to Jewish people right now. They are not being shot for wearing their kippahs. Okay, yes, we have seen some vandalism. Yes, we have seen uh, what we saw in the Montreal schools. But nothing to the level of what Palestinian supporters are facing right now. And Why this persists in the media, it's just it's it's eating away at me, honestly. It's eating away at me that because even my neighbor, you know, like oh, yeah, Jewish people around here just not feeling safe right now. And I don't get that. I still don't understand how anybody can be centering their own feelings of safety when they've seen what they've seen. Because you hear a chant and someone tells you that that might mean something. And so all of a sudden, I have politicians en masse saying that they are going to do something about anti-Semitism when it took millions of people taking to the street for them to say that they would ask for a ceasefire. Like, whose safety are we actually worried about? And it goes back to the safe streets things, too. They're not actually worried about making the streets safer for the people who live on them. Right? It's about making... It's about redirecting the attacks elsewhere, honestly. But yeah, I'm completely disappointed with Canadian media. But to see it happen at Canada Land, I think, has really shook some folks because that was a great outlet. There are great reporters there, and they had done an amazing job of pointing out the hypocrisies that exist in Canadian media. But at the time that we needed them most, Jesse Brown, who owns the publication, has decided to spend his efforts manipulating the work of peace activists at this point.
1: In case the lesson there hasn't been clear in all of the disappointments, don't put people on pedestals.
0: Yeah, and I think like you can't minimize the consequences that people are facing now because of their pro-Palestinian work, especially when it's cut. contrasted with the folks the the perception that there might be people slightly feeling unsafe you know we told the story of a calgary organizer who was arrested and charged with a hate crime that was totally bogus that had to be dropped but they were put into cuffs for chanting and then there's still people who have the fucking gall to stand there and say that they are the ones that feel unsafe in this environment because really, right now, there can't be anything more unsafe than trying to advocate for Palestinian rights at this point, other than like living in fucking Gaza if we're talking about political maneuvering. Like, there's nobody targeting Jewish people for the acts that are happening in Gaza. And in fact, even Israeli Canadians aren't being held to the same kind of scrutiny or harassment that any Palestinian advocates are facing right now. None. None. It's not happening. But those acts of resistance, you know, are not diminishing either. I am so proud of the people that are persisting throughout this. Because I'll tell you, like, I have to think every time I I wear my keffiyeh every time I go out, even to take the kid to the bus stop. It feels like just a small act of resistance for me. Like, (laughs) I'm not sure how my family feels about it in some circumstances. However, you know, folks are really, really putting their livelihoods on the line right now. And the fact that they are getting arrested and continuing to do this is so admirable. Um, I do very much appreciate the people that can make those sacrifices. And the fact that we're all sitting here now cheering on Yemen of all countries, because at this point they have attacked ships in the waters uh, out that they can control. And this has led to uh, one of the major shipping companies having to end all shipments to Israel. So this is a state that has been attacked. It's not even a legitimate state in the eyes of most of the world. Yemen has a very complicated recent history that I don't fully understand, but the fact that they're even in a position, the Houthi rebels to contribute to this fight in any way I've, I just find myself in very, do you know what my fortune cookie said? I had, I ordered out last night, that I would always live in interesting times. And that's never been more true than today, I think, where you're just wondering what the fuck is happening and wondering what we can do, honestly. But yeah, cheering on Yemen was not really in my bingo cart, as they say. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.